Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 319. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 319 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy Award-winning mix engineer Michael Brower, who is known for his work with Coldplay, John Mayer, The Rolling Stones, The Fray, My Morning Jacket, and Bob Dylan, just to name a few. We had a great chat recently, and I'm very much looking forward to you hearing our conversation. So, Michael Brower, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about client communications. The tone of how you present yourself can really affect a client's mindset. Be mindful of how you are coming off to somebody. We have to be careful, especially in written form, because sometimes humor or sarcasm does not come across. So be mindful of that. You could put yourself in the client's shoes as they're reading that. Clients can be in a sensitive state. They can be in in a state where they're insecure And you wanna make sure that your communications with them don't add to that insecurity. When it comes to speaking in in person or over the phone or even over a video call, be mindful of the tone of your voice. You might be coming from a good place, a sincere place, but the tone of your voice may come off aggressive or accusatory or whiny. You wanna come off supportive. You wanna make sure that they feel that they have an ally. Case in point, sometimes I say stuff to my family that I have good intentions behind, but my tone says otherwise. I might say something just to be truthful and I might sound harsh. So I speak from experience when I say, do your best not to come off mm, like an asshole. Lack of communication. This is a critical one. When someone reaches out to you, it's important to get back to them in a timely manner. I don't want you to be holding that phone or checking that email all the time, but When you do get something from somebody, if you can deal with it right then and there, great. If you can't, at least, you know, get back to somebody within 12 hours, 24 hours, but don't let two or three days pass by before you answer somebody. That's a serious sign of disrespect. And when it comes to technology, especially email, make sure that you're checking your spam folder, maybe once a week if possible. I was trying to register for NAM the other day for the online version of NAM. Couldn't find the email, went into my spam folder looking for it, and lo and behold, there was a whole bunch of emails that shouldn't have been marked as spam. And fortunately, they came in in a time frame that allowed me to respond to people without them thinking they were being disrespected in any way. So check that spam folder. Make sure it's doing what it should be doing and not fighting against you and killing off the emails from your clients. Remember, as I said before, we want to make sure that our clients know that they have an ally, somebody that's working on their side to achieve their goals. So anything you do, make sure it is in support of that goal, in support of the mission. Remember, the clients are not our enemies. They're not our adversaries. They are our clients. And just like if you're a waiter or a waitress, you don't want to leave the table of your clients hanging for too long. You always want to check in and make sure that they have what they need. Do they have enough water? Do they have enough bread? Giving 
them an update on when the food's coming, right? It's the same thing in audio. And I mentioned when the food's coming. That is analogous to setting timing expectations for people. You're working on a mix? If you think it's going to take longer, give them an update. One of the things I like to do when somebody sends me mix revisions is they'll send me a bullet point list. So I'll just take that list, copy and paste it into a new email. And as I go through each item, I will sign off and say, you know, you know, whether it's snare drum up in the chorus or the verse, I'll say, yep, snare drum up by this amount or chorus. Yes, vocal up. And then if it's something that I disagree with, I might say something like, you know, yes, I turned the the effects down in the bridge. However, I think we had some good forward motion happening with those effects at that level. Consider restoring it to the original level to keep that forward motion. But that way it serves as a checklist. It shows them that you took each thing seriously so they can listen for it. They might hear that, see your language. You know, I raised the vocal up this much. If you give it, give them the specific decibel level, then they may, you know, use that as a point of reference later and say, I like that, but maybe what if we go up, you know, instead of one and a half dB, what if we go like 1.8 or two? Or actually, that's too loud. Can we come down a half a dB? Just that communication where they see your language and they know that you're taking them seriously. This is a small group of tips to be thinking about, but like I said at the beginning, your clients want to make sure that they have an ally and you need to treat them like you are their ally, like that you are the person that they can trust. You don't want to talk down to them. If you disagree with them, that's fine, but you want to do that in the most respectful way possible. Don't make it about you. Treat your clients with respect. Communicate the best way you know how. You're gonna make mistakes and that's okay. You'll learn as you go. Even if you've been at this for a while, you can always recover from a mistake if you start with a point of respect. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Michael Brower here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. Absolute honor to have you on. I'm a fan of your work. We'll just dive right in. <laughs> did you grow up in New York? I did grow up in New York from the time I was seven. I actually, from the time I was about three months until I was seven years old, I grew up in France with my mother but I was born in New York City. It's a bit of a long story, but let me put it this way, that at seven, my father brought me back to New York. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh. okay, I see. Do you speak French? I do. Oh, I'm sure that helps you when you go down to mix with the masters quite a bit. Well, they come from all around the world, so I'm generally just speaking one language, which is English. I mean, there might be two or three participants that speak French, mm -hmm. but others it's every other language you can imagine but i speak with my mother every day i facetime her i'm a good son <laughs> i'm always speaking with her and we're jumping from french to english i have never an idea of where does the french stop and the english start so <laughs> and with her it's just natural well back in new york growing up did you play an instrument in band or were you ever involved in music then yeah i started as a drummer and so I had a band in college. We were called Jesus Green, G-E-Z-U-S. <laughs> and we were the three-piece, and we played just our own stuff. It was a lot of jamming. It was right about the time of Cream, so that's what we did. We jammed a lot. And then I put a band together near the end, like the last year. There was another band on where I went to. I went to Heidelberg in Ohio, and they had a really nice big band, two horns, sax, a lead singer, the whole thing. And then on the last year, I said, hey, you guys want to join us? And it'll just be your lead singer and your horn section. And the, the guy who was the head of their band was the horn player, Ron Silverlight. So we joined forces. And then when we graduated from college, we got ourselves that little house outside of the college in McCutcheonville. We called it the band Silverhoof, and we had a little farm. We called it Silver Silverhoof <laughs> Farm. <laughs> and that's where we practiced and lived. And then we would travel all over the Midwest or even the East Coast. And that was our little farmhouse was our home base. So was your mindset focused on being a player, being a rock star of any of any note? I think that's always the dream. But we were a cover band, essentially. Okay. Nobody wrote. Nobody wrote songs. And at the end of the day, that's what allowed me to just get to the point where I want to break up the band. It was because there was nothing to hold on to. You know, mm -hmm. when times are tough and you're just a cover band, who cares when you break up? 
you know, yeah. maybe the locals, but you're just another band. There's nothing to grab onto. Yeah, I mean, there was several reasons, but the good thing that came out of that is right after I graduated, I was really interested in in recording. I was a speech and theater major and kind of minor in music, and I just found recording fascinating, and I had a two-track TAC with two microphones, and I would kind of record the band stuff. So right after we graduated, I took a course at Eastman School of Music. Hmm. And it, they were teaching kind of like what I've started with Mixed with a Masters. They were, you know, there was like 10 different professors and one of them was Phil Ramon. And there's a good story about that, which what inspired me. But I went there and I was like, wow, I'd like to do this. This, this sounds fun. And I was concerned it was a little too technical to a bit, you know, like I'm a musician. I wanted to perform. And I thought, well, if I become an engineer, I won't, that'll go away and stuff. Well, I learned that that was not the case. And in fact, it enhanced my approach that became unique because all I ever wanted to do was perform when I was at the desk. <laughs> you can imagine I'm trying to play a console instead of the drums, you know. In the time of the band, were you always the guy that Hey, Michael, go handle the PA for us or, or go record yeah, the band. Yeah, well, actually, interestingly, the PA was right by my hi-hat. <laughs> I mean, I was the sound guy and I was recording our shows. So I would just get a balance and I'd go out in the audience when there'd be nobody there yet, right? And I would have one of the guys in the band hit the drums and I, I would get the balances from standing out on the floor. And then as people would fill in, I could tell that things would change and I would adjust or I could see somebody complaining they couldn't hear something. You know, It was a PV mixer, big old knobs, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was like six knobs. And we had the PV stands with the speakers. Remember that? It was old. Big towers. Yeah, yeah. And then I had my little, it must have been a cassette player. It must have been. And so I was recording the shows and then I'd go home and I'd listen to see how I did on the balance. And also, obviously, how were we playing? But I was double duty and I was thinking, okay, how can I make this balance better next time? And same thing with recording our rehearsals. I mean, I only had two microphones and the way I balanced well was because the other guys in the band would complain. I can't hear myself. All I hear is you, Brower. Well, yeah, I'm playing drums. I'm the loudest, you know, once you, <laughs> you turn it up a little. And so, you know, eventually when they'd stop complaining, I was like, yeah, you know what? I can hear everything. <laughs> you essentially got your, your start at a studio, a proper studio. Was that Media Sound in 76? Yes. It was. It was interesting. I mean, once I decided the band was done, that was probably 75 or early 76. I moved back with my dad and started looking around for studios. And he knew somebody in Chicago. And I can't tell you how frightening this process is. I mean, it's just at this point in 76... I'm like, I'm going to be 26 that year, right? Hmm. I was 25 when I actually got started. So it had to have been before October. And also I flew to Chicago and I love the band Ohio Players. Mm -hmm. They were so funky, right? And they were based out of Chicago. At least that's the studio they were playing there. So I went to that studio looking for the possibility of a job. And then I also went to Universal there. I went all over and 
most of them, except for the studio that I think it was called Paragon, the other ones, I'd give them my little CV and they'd look at it and go, okay. they just throw it in a pile and we'll get me in touch with you. Like, they just didn't give a shit. And then at this one studio, I was like, oh, this is where Ohio players are. You know, this is where I want to be because I want someday to record them. <laughs> Why not? But again, even though I did the two weeks at Eastman School of Music, I didn't know anything what they were talking about. I had no idea. Different patterns, different microphones. Really, I didn't know what wet. I keep leaning over to somebody go, what's wet mean? Like, why are you in this? class because I could only get in the advanced class for two weeks so I was supposed <laughs> to know everything but I knew nothing and I still have the little book where I wrote everything in and so they said well first you got to take a test and there were like 10 15 people interns wanting to get a job there and I took a test and I, was like, I didn't know any of the questions so I hand in the guy looks at me and goes well you didn't do very well I go well isn't that what you teach me I mean, <laughs> yeah. what does it matter what I know here what I know is I have ears. That's what I would always say. I have ears and I'm a musician and I'm going to be great. And that's really all you need. If I can learn drums and I can play with four parts of my body running in different times and cueing the band all the time, I can certainly learn how to patch and move faders yeah. and record, right? They were like, well, you know, we'll have you mopping for a year or so and then blah, 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 blah. And mm. I was like, okay whatever. So I left. So I, I did this. I went to a few different studios. I went, came back to New York City and I went to this great studio, which was Phil Ramone's studio, A&R. Hmm. At the time he was doing probably, well, who knows, probably Simon Garfunkel, you name it. Every day he was doing somebody great. And I'm being interviewed by this wonderful man. And I'm sorry that I don't remember his name. I really have to research again. He, he really triggered where I ended up. I mean, he literally, he was like, you know, Michael, you're, you're a little old now. You're like at 25 and here you first got to man the elevators for a, you know, a while. And then eventually you're stocking the studios. He goes, I think that's too long for you to wait. I think you'd be good, but it's too long for you to wait. Why don't you go to media sound and speak to my good friend there who's head of production, the production office, Susan Planer. They're really great there. I'm going to call her and I want you to go right there, right now. And he called her and she said, okay, fine. And he said, I got this kid here. I think he's going to be good. Go meet him. And I went over there and I sat down with her and she didn't ask me to take a test. She just listened to me and, and she could see that I just love music and that I didn't want to be on stage. I wanted to be in the background. I had decided I didn't want to be a performer. I came to that conclusion because I honestly felt that I wasn't going to be a good enough musician mm. to really succeed. Plus, I couldn't read. So if I can't read, and I'm not a musician, and I'm not a songwriter, what's the point, right? Yeah. But if I could go into recording, then I'm still involved in music and I'd be happier. And plus, I don't have to travel anymore. I wonder what it was about the guy that referred you to Media Sound that really took an interest in you. I wonder what it was that you were presenting to him that convinced him. Whereas, you know, others may not give you the time of day, but he saw something. I wonder what he saw. I wonder what it was you exhibited to him. Maybe what he saw in me is what I see in kids who I think are going to be good. And that is, I call it bright eyes. You look into their eyes and there's something bright and it goes back far. You can see there's depth in there, right? I think you know what I'm referring to. There's some people you're talking to and it's just, <laughs> you know? 
there's another agenda going on in there. And with me, even to this day, there's still a passion. And he could see that I really, really wanted it for the reasons of being involved in music. It was very pure, very honest. There was no talk about how much am I going to make? How long is this going to take me? I didn't care. What I cared about is being around music and that I had decided, you know what? I want to become a recording engineer. And so there was total clarity on my end that I had made my decision. Here I am 25. I've made my decision. I've tried this other stuff because you know what happens? You get these guys, these interns, and then six months later, eight months later, which happened to us all the time, they changed their mind. Mm -hmm. They went into something else. For me, it was like, this is what's going to happen. I want to become a recording engineer. That's it. Didn't you start in the shipping department? We always do. Yeah, that's what you did. You start in the shipping department and within, I think there was 15 of us or something in there. And then I think that the head shipper, I'm not sure whether he actually got promoted or he got fired, but I think he got fired. He had just the fact that he was in control of a bunch of people, I think got to his head, which is it's a little early in your career to be doing that. <laughs> but I think he got fired. And then they could see that I was an organizer. I was always questioning. I was trying to make things cleaner or better when nobody was looking is when people notice you, right? You're not trying to do it to impress anybody. That's just the way I am. And so I became the head shipper. And the responsibility is making sure that all the studios were stocked, that the tapes that were supposed to be going to labels were being sent and being responsible for the people that had been hired. And then if they were really doing something bad, I would report to production and say, look, this person is not holding up their end or whatever. So I took the responsibility very seriously, but that was usually from eight in the morning till five or six five o'clock or something like that, five days a week, probably. And then at six o'clock, I started offering whatever I could do. I wanted to get to know the assistants, obviously, because I've been there long enough to hang out and, and see who, who I really like to be with and always say, hey, I'm here. Hey, do you need me to set up for you? Can I help you set up? Can I help you set up? And I was just always available and never complaining, which hmm. are two important <laughs> traits for anybody. They could just see I was excited and I was generally, let me help, let me help. And so after about six months or so, I knew how every engineer liked their setup and how everything needed to be broken down, how cables had to be wrapped, where everything had to go, but specifically how each engineer liked your invisibility mm. when you're, and that you knew their setup. And they, you know they could get really, really, specific about stuff and that's what I was into. I was naturally into that. I was never sloppy. So they picked up on that and then eventually an assistant, again I think by luck, he did something that pissed off the studio and he got fired and there was a position open and guess what? I already knew how everybody worked so I didn't go into a second assistant position because I'd already been doing that while I was head shipper. So I moved right into assistant smoothly. And at the time, if I'm correct here, Ed Stasium, Ron St. Germain, Clear Mountain, they were there working? Ed was there a little later. He wasn't, we always thought of him as a staff, but he was more like a visitor hmm. before they ever opened up to anybody, right? Before every studio had their own engineers, you couldn't bring your engineer 
a producer could not bring their own engineer to a studio. It was all house engineers. You didn't want to use one of their guys, you go to another studio. Hmm. Because this was until the death of disco. Once the death of disco happened and all the labels cleared out the whole roster from 200 acts to 10 and studios were going out of business, there was always a staff of engineers who taught to staff of assistants who had the interns and the shippers. It was a three-tier so the oral history of how that studio had its secrets and its recording techniques were always being passed down from engineer to assistant. And so if you wanted to do something at a hit factory or electric lady or A&R, you went to one of their store engineers or you, you would bring your business to one of the young up and coming guys. You know, you say, oh, I've got my engineer. Independent engineers were not invited into these houses of music. These hmm. studios had their own sound, which they did not share with anybody else. Those were all the secrets that we kept what made media sound so special or a record plant so special. Or if you're looking about Trident or Townhouse or, or whatever, all the other ones, my goodness, there's so many other ones in England. Or if you went to California, they were all based on their star engineers. There is like a character to every studio, was there not? That's right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at that time in radio, that preceded the time where we had automated playlists. Wasn't there more regional DJs at that time as well, choosing the music? Oh, there was a time when yeah, it was very much about that. But that was also the height of payola too, because yeah. they had more control of, of, hey, play this record, play this record. Interesting. Just that parallel of radio and studios having those those regional sounds. If you go down to Muscle Shoals, that's going to be vastly different from being up in New York. Of course. You got a big break with Luther Vandross. And I'm really curious, what were the steps that preceded that? And what was, the, what was the trigger that somebody said, Brower, you got to do this Luther Vandross record? <laughs> the way it worked at Media Sound, which I think was probably the same at every other studio in New York City, is that during the day, basically only radio ads, commercials were being recorded. So from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., it was just ad dates. This is before any of these ad companies had their own studios, right? And right. so they always came to either A&R or Media Sound or Sync Sound, any of those. And no records were being made during the day. Why? Because all these ad date sessions were offering double scale, triple scale to musicians. And pretty much everything that was being recorded were always with session players. There wasn't really bands going on. I mean, there were some, but majority of records that were going on, the R&B records, all those, they were all session players that go in there. And then if, if suddenly this project had a hit song, then a band would be put together for it that would go on the road. <laughs> so I would see Luther doing vocals during the day, or I would see Alan Schwartzberg or Will Lee or John Trope or Bob Babbitt from Motown, on and on and on. Right? I mean, the, I'm only just touching the surface of all the great musicians you see during the day. And they were all booked during the day, so they were never available to do records. And then come six o'clock, I'd see Paul Schaefer again and Will Lee again, <laughs> yeah. and they'd be doing a night record, which is single scale, right? Unless you were the contractor or whatever. And so that's how it works. So during the day, I would do ad dates, and during the night, I would do the records. Now, where does Luther come in? Well, I would see Luther twice a day. <laughs> and when it came to doing records, I mean, he was always the one that was the master 
mind behind all the the vocal blends. And he was doing all the major commercials at the time too. McDonald's, Coca-Cola, you name it. He was the lead on all of those commercials. And I think right about that time too, he had met David Bowie. He was in one room doing something and Bowie was doing Young Americans in another and he overheard what Luther was doing and invited Luther to do all the vocal arrangements. Hmm. So at one point, now this Italian producer has come to America, name of Fred Petrus and his brilliant young arranger, Mato Malavasi. And he's like, okay, we're going to do this Italian disco. And the first band that they were doing was called Change. So they were over at Power Station and they were recording, they were trying many, many different singers who would be right for this record. They had, I think, most of the songs they already had down, but they were looking for the singer for Glow of Love and Searching specifically, and they just couldn't find anybody that was right. And Yvonne Lewis, who was the vocal contractor for this, who I loved and I saw her twice a day, (laughs) and she really liked me. Everybody liked me. Luther liked me because I always did a great job recording them, and I was fast, and I never screwed up. And so... I had a really good relationship with all the studio musicians and she was watching them and listening to the mixes they were doing, you know, and they're complaining. And she said, I think you should try Michael Brower over at Media Sound and let him record a singer that I think would be right, Luther Vandross. So they said, okay, because things weren't going well. And they came over to Media Sound and Luther walks in like, we know each other really well. I already know exactly how I'm going to record him. Everything's already set up on the console even before he's walked out. He can start singing and it's going to be a good take. There's <laughs> not, there won't be any distortion, but that's what we always learned anyway. And I would be hitting record. That was the absolute protocol. The second somebody set something into the microphone, it was being recorded onto the multitrack. So he came in and literally on the glow of love, He's got a little piece of paper and and I'm playing the song instrumental and he's singing to it. He sings about, I don't know, half of it. And he goes, okay, I go outside. So he goes outside and he's holding the piece of paper and he sings Glow of Love. That was it. That was the first take, holding the piece of paper. So they're blown out. Their minds are like, oh my God, this is, who is this? This is great. (laughs) (laughs) And then we followed it up with Searching. And the same thing. I think he might have gotten a mic stand on that one. I mean, a a music stand, rather, to put the piece of paper on. But it was the same thing with that. First take. I I don't know that there were any... Maybe we punched in a couple little things, but he nailed it. And then I mixed the two. And that became very successful. And at that point, they wanted me recording and mixing all their projects. Little Macho Band, BBQ, another... It just went on. And everything they were doing, I became the engineer and of course luther listens to glow of love on the radio and he's like wow this is great and he calls me he goes michael my voice is too dry on this <laughs> you know you should make it wetter <laughs> i remember that so clearly and, and i go yeah luther but it being drier brings out that sensitivity which i said that again many years later with chris martin when I was like, no, really, you need to be loud and you need to be kind of dry. I want to bring out all that stuff in your voice because I want it to sound vulnerable. I want it to be sensitive. And so they believed me. And then Luther said, well, I'm doing my own record. 
Hmm. He goes, but I'm paying for it myself. So we'll go in on weekends and stuff and we'll do two songs on a weekend and we'll keep doing till we got all eight. And that's what we did. So he paid for the whole thing. Was that on Never Too Much? Yep. The Never Too Much record. So we'd go in and sometimes we mix down in Studio B and other times up in the lounge, maybe sometimes in Studio A, but mostly it was all in B because that was kind of my room. The R&B room was tight. And I have to interject this. I'm a rock guy. That just flows through my blood. But listeners, if you listen to the opening track of that Luther Vandross record, Never Too Much, if your head doesn't bob, there's something wrong with you. It's just like, (laughs) yeah. And it just, it sounds amazing. Amazing. But you know, thank you. And the thing about it is that all those moves, you're hearing something crescendo every four bars. Hmm. There's always something moving up. Always something going, all that I'm riding manually. For me, it was a performance. I'd be standing up and I'd have one finger on Luther on the right hand and then the second finger would be on the backing vocals. And my left hand was like playing all the instruments and I'd be riding the piano and I'd ride the vocal. I mean, I'd ride the guitars or I'd ride the bass or the left hand was constantly moving. And because I'd been a drummer, I knew all my cues. And for (laughs) me, it was always a performance. I never wanted to mix something in pieces, you know, like, oh, I screwed up at the verse. Okay, well, I'll just cut the tape later. It always had to be run the tape from beginning to end. And if I screw up, I start again. So there was this excitement of performing, right? Yeah. And that's what you're feeling, aside from obviously the great performances. Would you say that that's like the beginning of where the career started to take off the runway a bit? Absolutely. Well, you know, every career starts with a hit. So, I mean, doesn't matter. You need a hit. You need somebody to be listening to what you're doing. It's a word of mouth. Your self-promotion back then, it's of, well, what? Who did this? And back then, you could see the credits. It was even easier. How were you surviving then? Were you ever struggling to pay your bills at that point in time? Or were you still trying to get that business together? When I became staff engineer, I was actually doing okay. But up until then, I made, I think, $90 a week. And I was sharing an apartment. And I basically had 20 bucks to blow after all the utilities were paid. (laughs) So I'd go dancing. So I used to go to uh, I used to go to this place called Ice Palace. Little did I know it was actually a gay joint, but it had such good music, and I loved to dance. And all the other clubs just seemed really just crappy. Yeah. So I'd go there, and aside from getting pinched in the ass, I turn around and go, "Whoa, oh, <laughs> wait, I'm not into that." Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> I was really. I was having a great time. I just, that's where I spent my, my money, basically. So I was always around music. Music during the day, music during the night. In 1984, you flew to London, where, according to what I've read, the music scene was exploding then, and, and you met with some A&R people that were willing to give you a shot at production and remixing. What I yeah. want to know is, what prompted you to want to do that? What motivated you? And what, why, what was the, the agenda? To go to England? Yeah. What was the, uh, the idea ah, there? Good question. And I have a good answer for that one. <laughs> My mentor, Harvey Goldberg, had gone to England. I had, at this point now, I thought I was cool. I thought I was ready to become a producer and I became independent. I left Media Sound. And then nobody called me. <laughs> so I went with all this. 
I'm cool. I'm cool too. I'm no good. I'm no good. <laughs> How can my career end so quickly? And Harvey had been going to England making records. And he calls me one day and he goes, Michael, man, you have to get over here because there's like three or four songs on the radio that you mixed. There's Womack and Womack is on here. And, and I don't know what else, you know, there's this stuff you've done. It's playing here, man. This is, you got to come over. And so I said, okay, great. I'll do that. And I had a kind of a manager at the time who set some stuff up and had a few meetings. And I remember this so distinctly because he said, now, Michael, and I had this little mustache growing that nobody could actually see, but he goes, they don't like hairy faces here. This is, we're looking at maybe 83 maybe actually even 84. I don't know why that number rings a bell, but I think it could have been 84. And so he says, you got to shave your, your mustache, man. They want a clean face. Otherwise, A&R labels might just be turned off by you or something. I was like, whatever, I'm fine. So I went there and I shaved my little mustache like anybody would notice. And I was staying in this tiny, tiny little, little hotel. It was so small that when I got out of bed, my feet were in the shower. And they didn't really know shower pressure yet, right? So you turn the shower on, it was a little handheld thing, it'd be like dripping on your head. <laughs> it's like, fine, I didn't care. Then I went off and did meetings. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it started is because Harvey said, get over here, man. And over there, the great thing is that they would give you a shot. They, they, they were so kind to me. And the way they were doing deals, it'd be like one song or two song deals with bands. So they didn't have all that much to lose. It wasn't like I was going to do a whole album and then they'd have to take the risk on that. It was like a one song deal. Hmm. And the one particular band was called Animal Nightlife and the song was called Mr. Solitaire. And Ashley Newton, who was a young A&R at Island, just said, here, take a shot. I had no production credit. He says, here, go ahead, produce it. I believe in you. <laughs> wow. I just honestly at that time maybe it's changed but nobody would give me a shot here. Everybody was like, "Well, you can engineer this." I said, "No, I want to produce something. I mean, I'm good. I'm ready." At the point where I left, I was involved in a lot of the productions in with my ideas, but I wasn't getting any credit, which is the way it goes. The producer isn't going to decide that the engineer now is going to need co-production, but I had been learning my craft. Yeah. And I was ready to co-produce. People were not interested. Now oh, you can engineer this, you can mix that. But, you know, I was like, I want to have a shot at it. And England just welcomed me with open arms, which is why I've always to this day was like, whatever I can do, I want to make a massive, massive hits for English artists. I want it to be global because I want to give back, you know, for what they've done for me. And you stayed there till what, 1990? I was back and forth. I'd go there four or five times a year. Okay, okay. I'd stay in Notting Hill, Gate. I'd get a little flat and stuff. And there were different studios that I loved there. There was, I think, Hudson, Townhouse, Britannia Row. And I just loved it there. I loved it there because they were so kind to me. And what I figured out is, here I am, I'm doing R&B. But I grew up on British music. Yeah. That sound in my head. And so... What I noticed that other American mixers were going there and they were changing everything that the artists were doing to make it sound like either East Coast R&B or West Coast R&B. And they weren't maintaining the integrity of the British sound, which is basically the mid-range and up 
all that melody, all the reverbs and the really cool things were going on in there. And bands at the time wanted, they wanted to maintain that, but they also wanted the American R&B that we were building up. The stuff that I've been doing with Chains, like a real tight, but just really solid bottom end, but big. And they didn't quite know how to do that. And so when I went over there, I was like, man, I love the British sound. I just want to blend into what I do for the bottom end of the record. And that was very, very popular because I was really respecting the British sound and the culture of that. But I was introducing what they were looking for. I wasn't trying to do something different. They were trying to get that R&B bottom. And so I knew how to do that. But I wasn't going to change the rest of the music, you know, the balances. That needed to be very dynamic and like in your face and as few elements as possible. You know, like the British music, you could always songs, you could always hear. Sometimes it could be just a tambourine or other times it was a reverb on something. And of course, remember, I'm still performing. Mm -hmm. right? So every mix, I was like riding the faders and it was kind of new. It was definitely new for that. Did you actively study those techniques that brought that British sound? No, that was just in my head. Okay. And were there people in England, other engineers that you kind of zeroed in on to say, I'm, I'm going to pay attention to these folks? No. no. No? No. So you just came with this inspiration of the British sound and brought the, the uh, American R&B low into it. This one person that actually changed me quite a lot but I never met him and I never, beyond going, what is this, was Hugh Padgham. Oh, yeah. Because until Face Value came out, I got to tell you this. I don't know how I can say this quickly, but I was so afraid of sounding like everybody else mm -hmm. that I never listened to anybody else's records from 78 until, I guess, until Face Value. I never listened to any other record. I only listened to my records. I only listened to what I recorded and what I was mixing. And then I would listen to that and I would go, hmm, how can I improve that? And so I kept building up influencing of my own influence. And as not to say that I wasn't always out there, like I said, dancing and listening to music or I'd be in a cab and I'd be hearing stuff, but I never bought records and studied them and, and was like, oh, this is what I need to do. Hmm. I was afraid to do that. I was totally afraid, not to mention that, you gotta remember the engineers at Media Sound, they were intimidatingly good. I mean, they were monsters, these guys. And so I was so insecure, I just didn't want to be another average mixer and I didn't know what to do. All the other part too is that if I listened to something that was great, I'd get depressed and I'd be like, I'm no good. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't want to get that. I would avoid that because I don't want to feel that way. And so little did I know what I was doing in the process. But but then again, it, Harvey was part of this. Harvey, one day he goes, Michael, you got to listen to this record. And I said to him, you know, I don't listen to records, right? Because <laughs> you know? he was my best friend, him and Don Wershba, you know, and I was like, come on, man, you know, I don't. He goes, it's time you do this now. It's time you have to hear this. And so we all sat down, we listened to it. And I was like, wow, listen to that room sound. That is just, that is just so intense. And how is he doing it? You know, we're thinking about, well, it just got to be gated, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But I, but the bottom line was like, this is where you need to go, Brower. And so I was so excited. I was about to do Luther's second record, Forever, For Always, For Love. And 
as we were recording, I started introducing, you know, more <laughs> excitement and understand. I mean, I was responsible for the sound of that record of the first record, right? Right. And it was generic R and B, and I gave it this kind of a fresh East Coast thing that was kind of mine, even though it was influenced by the other guys at Media Sound, but it was kind of mine, and that was my contribution and Luther's contribution was the music, the lyrics, everything. Mine was how to present it. And I gave it a fresh approach. And I always felt like I had freedom for that. And so on the second record, I'm like, okay, I want to introduce a little bit more excitement, a little, I want things to get a little rockier and see where that goes. And he shut that down. Oh, I was going to ask, how did Luther deal he with that? He shut it right down. And, and I think that kind of began the slow spiraling of our ending a relationship mm. a musical relationship it was i wasn't going to be i wasn't going to be stunted i was all all in and i was constantly creating new ideas and i was so excited by it and so and because the music was evolving and it was important for me to just keep doing stuff because I knew how great everybody else was, you know, it's hard to describe. It's a balance of fear and and excitement, and not hearing something that was just so much better that I could ever be that I'd want to just stop. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. What was your process of, of, if you weren't actively buying records, which I totally get, what was your self-evaluation method? What, were you listening back to those records you'd done and thinking, okay, how can I improve upon that? Yeah. Or what's the, what's the next incarnation of this? Where does this progress exactly. to? I would do that. And also, Greg Calby was mastering all my records. Okay. And so he was a great mentor to me because, you understand, I'm giving him a record practically every six weeks. Hmm. Right from soup to nuts, records were being finished in six weeks. That was just standard. So I'd give him one, and then 
he listened to it and I go, okay, how is this? And you go, you know, Michael, you're lacking, maybe there's a little too much 350 or something in your mix or there's, or he would just make different comments and I go, okay, okay. And then the next record, I come back six weeks later and I go, how's this? Because I'm recording and mixing everything, right? Mm-hmm. And he'd listen, he'd go, okay, yeah, that that's good now. Now, da, 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 da. And he would make other suggestions. And then six weeks later, I come back with another one. How's this one now? So he was my sounding board. And obviously, Greg Calby is a legend. And back then, he was just making good records. So it was that. It was Harvey, my best friend, listening to stuff. And I just tried to keep it as tight to myself and those who I could trust because I didn't want to know how much better everybody else was because I knew myself. I would just get depressed by it, you know, and I'd be like, oh. So if I avoid all that, I'm good in my mind. (laughs) Was there a period of time when you started to be on the front part of the recording less and more on the mixing side? And were you making a transition to focusing on mixing? That eventually happened when I was going to England a lot. And I was, at the point where I was going to England, I was recording, I was producing, and I was mixing. I realized within a couple of years of producing that I was okay, but I would never get past okay. I wasn't a songwriter. And I realized quickly enough that if you're not a songwriter, you're not gonna be able to fix the problems with the songs. Or if there's a bridge, to write a bridge. Or if the lyrics are horrible, how to fix the proper. I I didn't have that talent. Hmm. So I was like, okay, I can be an engineer producer, but I'm always going to be dependent on a band that's self-sufficient. And that isn't always going to happen. And at the end of the day, once I was done recording and producing, all I wanted to do was mix it. And so there was a point, I think, Rolling Stones, when I did Steel Wheels, I think that was it for me. Understand, too, I've been studying and mixing many different styles. I would do five years in one style, five years in another. I was really grasping. I knew my R&B. I was getting really no rock and roll, and I was getting to know jazz. I mean, I've been knowing jazz, and then then the pop rock, and then the R&B rock, and the R&B pop. All of those styles from all the kind of music I was doing, I really understood the feel of each one. Hmm. And then it came to a point after Steel Wheels, it was like, I need to commit to the one thing I love the most, the one thing I can do seven days a week that I want to do seven days a week, and that's mixing. And I will mix everything. I will not mix just one style of music. I'm going to go after the greatest singers in the world. And that's where I made my decision. I said, I won't be able to get to them as a producer and an engineer. Who cares? I engineer it. Somebody else's mix it, right? No, 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 no. I want to find the greatest singers. And at this point, I was like, okay, it's time for me to really come back to the States and break into the States and stop being... And and at that time, the music in England was getting by 90, I think, 8, 99 or something. Music wasn't the same anymore. There weren't bands. It was pretty much all loops. And it's just, there was that period of time. It's just the soul that I love so much was lacking. So it's time to go back to New York. Looking back a little bit, the process of elimination in your life, you started out as a drummer and you kind of 
dispensed with that. I would assume that there wasn't a lot of love lost with that. But when you decided to focus on mixing, was there any identity crisis tied up in the production side that you were hesitant to leave? Did you think, I'm going to miss this, but man, I'm going to just go forward with this mixing? All I wanted to do is mixing. But here's the connection between when you said, well, there was no love lost when you left there actually there was it took Mm. me months and months to be able to not live for the audience acceptance when the band played well and the audience cheered and clapped that is an addiction that you want every day and the way that i was able to stop that is i transferred it to when i started recording and mixing In my mind, I was always performing in front of an audience. It was a virtual audience. And I would be playing. I could imagine I was on stage and I had the audience. And then if I did a really good mix, I could hear the audience going, "Ah." (laughs) (laughs) And so because I missed that so much, I was able to incorporate it into my energy of, well, I still have the audience and then I'll be okay. Because the everything else regarding the band, the life, having to depend on other musicians for your success, I didn't want any of that. But what I did love was that feeling when you're just hot and the audience going crazy. Good Lord, there's just... <laughs> and so I kept that in me. I just made it virtual. When I was talking to Ryan Gilligan, your former assistant, he made a comment about one of the things that he learned from you was... I don't remember if this is exactly what he said, but something to the effect of Brower mixes by emotion. And if the emotion is not coming through within the first 15 minutes, he pulls the faders down and starts over. Is that accurate? Very. Okay. Some people will mix by trying to make it sound as the best they can from a fidelity standpoint, the best From a balancing standpoint, Yeah. yeah. Can you break down that the thought process of when you sit down to mix a song? Like, didn't you mix the new Radicals song, You Get What You Get? Sure. Okay. As a matter of fact, he played it at the inaugural. He had a reunion. I called him. I said, Greg, I can't believe after all these years, you can perform with the same energy that you did back when we mixed that song. Yeah. I mean, it was really incredible. And then he had Danielle Brisbois with him and then there were new members. And even the engineer, he told me the engineer had studied that mix to see because I got a lot of delays and repeats and all types of stuff going on. And there's a lot of jumps in the dynamics of a guitar, like things are just popping all over the place. And he did, the engineer did a great job matching that. He really nailed that. I was very, very impressed. That's a song to me that exemplifies my observations of of your mixing. I listen to that song and I get excited. Is it the best snare drum sound in the world? No, I'm not paying attention to that. I'm paying attention to how I feel when I listen to that. And that's a testament to that. And and you know, bottom line is that this is music. Who cares about balances? All right, Mm. so you have something perfectly balanced, but it doesn't touch you. Therefore, it's not a good balance. Mm. If you want to look at it technically, Anyway, balance, who cares about balance? What you hear, what you want is something that touches you, that you're following the story that the singer is telling. And if the story has certain ominous joy or an edge of sadness in it, even though they're portraying some happiness, 
that needs to be shown when you're mixing, that it isn't as happy. You can tell. And the music, the way you mix that has to bring that vision out, that feel out. So now once you get all of that, then you can listen to it and you go, wow, these balances are great. Well, they're balances that were completely because of trying to get the feel out. I'm not thinking about balancing. Who cares about balances? You can listen to some mixes and if you really technically listen to them, they sound like crap, but the song is just unbelievable and it touches you. I'll give you an example of something that is it's funny because a friend of mine, David Durr, who's- Empirical Labs, David Durr. Right. He's been a friend of mine since, since the beginning. And he didn't know I had mixed this one song. And I, I rarely look at Facebook, but I happen to be on in there and I see a comment about El King X's and O's. And he goes, I don't believe this song. Whoever did this just compressed the crap out of it. And he goes, I just didn't like it. And he goes, and then the more I listened to it, the more I thought, this is genius. It's so perfect for the song. <laughs> and, and then <laughs> I, I read this and then I wrote, thanks. And then a couple of minutes later, he goes, wait a minute. <laughs> did you mix this? <laughs> right. But that's the point. It's like, that was the approach to get her and X's and O's to sound, the, to feel the way it was. That they, You had to throw all the go-tos and the approaches out and just imagine what she was doing and mix from that, from totally from your heart, from what the story was telling. And that will lead to the right balances, not the other way around. Do you think too many people are mixing for their peers instead of for the audience and, and the fans? Well. I think if they're mixing for their peers and they're doing it right because their peers, who are their peers? Their peers are going to want, you can't fool your friends, you can't fool your peers, right? So you got to be mixing it so they go, yeah, man, that's the shit, right? Okay, okay. Otherwise your peers are going to go, well, it's nicely balanced, but I don't feel it, right? So I'm giving credit to all the peers that okay, they're, okay. they're going to be musicians. Because, I mean, I'm kind of jumping on Dave's comment, oh, this is so compressed, and but actually I listen to it and I enjoy it. Yeah, because the more he listened to it, the more he got it. But he was, I think he was coming from a that first reaction of, because that mix is so radical, honestly. I mean, it is just crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> And the reason why he was writing is, is because he was like, the more he listened to it, the more it just captured him. And mm. that's the point of a song. Who cares about the mix? Who cares about the production? It's how are you going to present this song so that the artist vision blows your mind, that it tells the story, not kind of tells the story or is a nice, oh man, there's nothing worse than a nice mix <laughs> I knew there was a point in my career. I knew I knew my career was about to end when somebody because people would always say, I love this mix, man. You are such a badass, made me cry. Or I really hate this mix. I mean, it's just so wrong for what I was looking for. Okay, I'll take both of those. Mm. But that's a nice mix. That was the death kiss on that one. And when I first heard that and I heard it a second time a month later, that's a nice mix. I was like, oh man, I'm fucked. <laughs> what is your process when working with clients when it comes to disagreements or stylistic differences or revisions that you think are unnecessary? I mean, revisions is a really tough one. I know friends of mine who absolutely, 
I mean, I know Andy Wallace says this. If you absolutely disagree with the revisions, then you you tell them why and you do it. And I am total agreement with that because they're missing where this song, you know, and a, a whole hundreds of tiny little cuts in the skin, mm-hmm. <laughs> death by a thousand cuts. That's what a mix can be because it slowly changes the direction. And I am confident the direction I have provided is the right. Now, if they go, well, no, that's not the direction. Okay, fine. I will go in another direction. But sometimes revisions don't put you anywhere. They start focusing more on the instrument or on one particular person, and then the picture's gone. The message is gone. But then there's also people who honestly don't give a rat's ass. They just hear the changes, make them. And they're usually changes that aren't going to hurt the song. It's like if they didn't put them in, nobody would notice. But they're going to notice. So I'm okay with that. It's only when things go radically bad that I just go, man, I hate this song. You know, and at that point, I have to make a decision. I have to get to say, look, let's listen to an earlier mix and just see what's going on here. I try not to do the I thing. I always try to do a we or a you you th- I think you did better in an earlier mix. You did this, you did that. Because if it becomes an I, then it becomes an I, I against me, against you. Yeah. Right? So I try, I mean, I've learned all the scenarios over these years, the right way to get what you need and the wrong way. So in, mm. that, in that respect, revisions is a tough one because nobody talks to you anymore. How do you get revisions? You get an email. That's, That's right. How, in fact, you don't even ever even talk to the person from the get-go. I try to. So what do I do? I listen very carefully to the rough mix, and I determine what should be maintained from the rough mix and what needs to change to make it a better song. And whenever possible, I try to have a conversation with the artist or the producer mm-hmm. to confirm what this is. I mean, with all my years of experience, when they don't want to talk, then I, I go with my gut. But I prefer speaking to the artist. After all, it's their song or the producer. And a quick conversation of just asking, so tell me about your rough mix, is going to really help you. You've been at this a long time where the methods over time have changed. I mean, we've gone from have to. in-person sure. people there while you're mixing to where we're at now, where people are sending in mix revisions over email. You're methods of mixing from a technical standpoint have also changed. You've, you've gone from having a, a room with an SSL to having what I think is an Avanes 6 setup, but you've kept all your outboard gear. Is that correct? Well, up until recently, but you have to adapt both technologically and musically. If you're going to be a mixer, you have to adapt with the change of music and you have to keep true to yourself on what style do you like to do? And for me, I'm always changing that challenge. Every five years or so, I really want to switch it up. And then I work really hard for about a year figuring out how to drop the go-tos that are going to take away from this new style or new, new approach. So I'm not afraid to be afraid, <laughs> I may say. I know that at the end of the rainbow when I'm trying to do something new will be so much better and greater than where I'm going now because I've been doing this particular style, this particular approach long enough. I've kind of gone as far as I can go with it. 
So I'm going to stop feeling so excited and passionate. So it's time to start something new. And frankly, I fear more not getting a phone call than fear trying to change my sound. Right. (laughs) Do you change out of fear or do you change out of boredom? Oh, I change totally out of both. But mostly, it's mostly driven, mostly like 80% driven at this point of, I want something new because I still love mixing. I love mixing a great singer. I love mixing a great band. And recently now, I really want to, in the last couple of years, I just love Latin music so much. And so I've been doing seminars in Brazil and Colombia, other countries in South America. I've even done seminars in Mexico. And I just love that vibe. And so I'm learning the whole approach of maintaining even the local culture of the music, what is particular to that territory and and how percussion is really EQ'd and as we want to go technical. And a good friend of mine, Henry Cole, who's an amazing drummer who's from Puerto Rico, I mixed a record of his and he taught me a lot about because he's using a lot of different Latin percussion that I'd never heard before, the Barillo and many others. And he would teach me like, no, this is how you EQ those and that's how it sits in with my real drums. And what a great learning experience. Yeah, I mean I've been very, very fortunate to have people who looked after me and said, here, try this. So this help, I'm just so in love with Brazilian music and not just the stuff that's going to stay on the shelf for a few months. I mean, you know, I'm always, as you can see my discography, I'm always looking for the cool music and the things that's got a long longevity to it. I think that's great that you do that because most people... Once they reach a certain plateau, they're like, well, this is the way I've always done it. I have to keep doing it this way. Why would I change? But you seem to readily change with the times and make it work. Well, it's because I haven't been jaded yet. (laughs) (laughs) Look, this music business sucks. We all know that. It is not easy. And there's a lot of things that go on that can get you to really become so jaded that you just want to walk away from it. It's not an easy life. It is not an easy business. And to juggle all of that and then let it affect the music is, well, it's a shame. Who taught you the business side of this to keep it together all these years? I guess my father was a good businessman. He was an industrial designer, but he was lucky. And I think I'm lucky too. Part of it is you can do accounting, you can, you're good with numbers, but you're also good with visuals. He was an artist. Hmm. And so when I'm mixing, I'm always mixing in visuals. I'm not thinking about, I look at a fader or I look at a piece of gear and I see a tone or an attitude, something that, that will fit with what I'm looking for. As your mixing has shifted over the years, has your, has your business practice shifted over the years, your way of knowing your worth or or taking points here not taking points there doing well i have a great lawyer reed hunter and i have a business manager that i mean i have a good team around me Mm. to ensure that they're watching around me personally i'm gonna go with what they're saying unless i disagree but i'm not doing all this on my own yeah. I just have, I have a good team of people and it's important to get that team. Look, my father always said to me, learn accounting, take good accounting courses, you know, learn business. And I was a 
I was a dumbass, man. I just did not listen to him. Hmm. And I have regretted that one because it's really important that you learn your business. If you want to be in the music business, you have to learn the business end of it too. Otherwise, you will be abused or you will have to spend a lot of money for other people to do the job and then you won't be able to watch over the job they're doing. How did you develop the team that you have? How do those people come into your life? Recommendations. <laughs> With Reed, it was funny. With Reed, every time there would be a contract, Eric Eager was my manager at the time, and Eric was like, oh, I'm dealing with these points and stuff with their lawyer, and Reed's name would always come up. He's like, oh, he's a tough, you know, he really wants this, blah, blah. And, and then one day I was watching a show, I don't remember, maybe Irving Plaza or, or somewhere, one of those concerts, and Reed was there. I hadn't met him, and Eric is with me, and he says, this is Reed Hunter. And I was like, you. <laughs> and he says, yeah. I said, why are you not representing me? Or maybe he said to me, why am I not representing to you? I think that's what he said. Why am I not representing you? And I turned to Eric. I go, yeah, man. Why is he not representing me? <laughs> and then we had lunch a few days later and he's been representing me ever since and he's become a good friend too because i was a bike racer for many years through all of this and he's into biking and so we became biking buddies and it would be great it was fun yeah reed's amazing you've taken me to my next question how have you focused on health in this in in your time in the business because we do sit an awful oh, lot health is just so important i'm so glad you asked that there's a few different things one of them took forever for me to finally start but physically I balance being in the studio with being totally outside so I was racing I went everywhere from 100 miles to 300 miles a week training and I had a racing team and we raced locally and it was a very successful team and it was being sponsored for many years when I was at Sony Studios so we were known as Team Sony hmm. and we won everything we were a force to be reckoned with. And we were, it was a really good. And then eventually he became one of the guys on the team. Once I left Sony, it became global. And then eventually he became Brower, <laughs> Team Brower. But <laughs> I was out there and I loved the balance because in the studio, I'm basically all alone. I'm mixing, there's no windows. And I'm focused on just one thing. When you're out racing, it's all team dependent. It's a chess game. And your success depends on those around you, on your team. Hmm. And the strategy is completely different. And you have to train for that. You can't just go race 30, 40 miles, not unless you've been training harder. Yeah. And, and so for me, that was a great, great balance. And then eventually, I was more into the training than the mixing. And I, I was networking depended on making sure that I could get my training in, which was not a good thing. So eventually it had too much of an effect on my career. It was out of balance. And then I had to stop racing and so on and so forth. But I still bike. I love biking and I still do 100 miles a week. And I may not go as fast, but I'm certainly working to always making my numbers a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And then up here, I'm in the Catskills. So some of the hills here are 15 degrees. 17 degrees so i slowly start training so i can get up those things and not fall over and so it's always a challenge i love that and so that balance was very important for me 
And then the latest and the one of the most important is meditation. Hmm. And I started doing TM, practicing TM maybe two years ago now. Is that transcendental meditation? Transcendental meditation. And it was the easiest of all the forms. And it was the only one where you actually, you do transcend. The other ones, they're in the cognitive mind. They all stay up on the surface. And you have to do things that I wasn't interested in, right? I don't want to be necessarily cross-legged in a lotus position because that's too painful. (laughs) I don't want to have to clear my mind. I don't want to have to force my mind to do anything. I don't want to have to be repeating. There's a mantra that you're taught, but it becomes very blurry. It just kind of helps the transcending. Mm. But it's like up and down. You're like, you go down, you come back up, and everything is okay. It's like there's nothing. You don't have to believe in it. You can just practice it. It's 20 minutes twice a day, It and it really really helped and it changed my life. It's interesting how many people I've spoken to who those are the words they use. And it's a very subtle thing. It's like my best friend was the first one to notice it. I only been practicing maybe three months and we're just talking and he pauses and he goes, what have you, what's changed? What are you doing? I'm like, (laughs) what do you mean? What am I doing? I was giving some advice on something he was going through, which we always did. And he was like, I don't know, man, what's different? I said, well, I don't know. I started practicing TM three or four months ago. He goes, no kidding. Tell me more about it. And then he said, all right, get me a name of somebody down here in Florida. And I spoke to my teacher, Mario, and I got a name down in Florida and he and his girlfriend started practicing it. (laughs) I think in today's world and the stresses and forget music, whatever you're doing, you need this ability to meditate. And look, whether it's TM or something else, I wanted this one because I didn't like all the other things that the other meditations were involved in. And it turns out that TM was actually the oldest of all the meditations. It was the original one. And then you know, there have been many factions, but it's the only one where it actually transcends to the point that you get down to these. The, it's so scientifically studied, TM, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Do you find that it that it affects your mixing in a positive fashion? Well, it affects kind of everything in a positive fashion. But you know, mm. for me, music was always my meditation. Uh. I didn't need meditation. My mother is very persistent. I think since I was eighteen, she goes, "Darling, you need to do yoga and meditation <laughs> over and over and over." And finally, one day, I said, "Hey." Uh, I'm doing meditation. She was like almost shocked. I think she almost had a heart attack. It's like after all these years, I say, but it's like this. It's not the kind of you do, but this works for me. And I and I and it's so easy. <laughs> you know, you go to a teacher. It's like four ninety-minute sessions, four days in a row, and then they give you a mantra, and then you're off and running. It's just it's crazy. Huh. So meditation, period. I, so meditation staying healthy and same with foods you know you can't be eating lard and bacon all day because that's going to affect your body yeah you know i mean i certainly like bacon but like anything else you know you just got to see what what's good but at the end of the day it's that you still love what you do and in order for me to continue doing what i love what i wanted to do all these other things were important to balance it out so i can do what i want to do right yeah it's they're all related, but most important is the mindset of, I love to mix a good song, and I want somebody to call me to, so I can mix their great song, you know. And there's an insecurity for me. I think with most of my friends, it's the same. It's just like 
we just want to mix great music. <laughs> Somebody call me. I need a new song. Yeah. <laughs> call me. Call me. <laughs> We're almost out of time, but I, I want to ask, wrap it up with a, a couple things. Has work-life balance been challenging over the years? Just family or relationships or of just, course. you know, outside social life? Look, in the beginning, you have to commit 100%. So you're going to have to sacrifice your friends. You're going to have to sacrifice the social stuff you're gonna have to sacrifice yeah you can't sacrifice your partner i mean you really really have to but when there's very little time you have to make sure it's quality time you have to say okay i am not in the studio now and most important and this is something that a good friend of mine actually taught me and i wasn't doing it although i I was trying is when you have a child they're gonna grow despite what you're doing. And if you're not at home, they're going to, they're still going to grow and you're going to miss out on it. And they're going to want you by the, they want, it's the old daddy, when are you going to come home? When are you going to come home? Well, eventually one day they're not going to say daddy, when are you going to come home? And that's going to be a sad day if you haven't been around. And a good friend of mine, and he's a big publisher. He's a president of his company. I mean, this man is as busy as he can be. And he always dedicated, I think it was a Tuesday as family night. And no matter what, he was in LA, he would leave at, I think, five o'clock and he'd be home by six to be with his granddaughter. Never ending, never missed it unless he was traveling. And if he was traveling, he would talk to her. He would always, so she always depended on it. And he said to me, you know, the reason why I did that is because I didn't do it with my own daughter. And I really, really regret that. And at this point now I have, I had a six-year-old and Sophia and, and this one night she's on the phone with me as Kenny is outside talking to somebody and I'm about to have dinner with them. And it's my daughter saying, when well, are you going to come home tonight? When are you going to come home? I said, I think I'm going to be home by the time you're in bed. And she was so sad. And I was so bummed. And Kenny comes back in and he goes, what's the matter? And I tell him the story. He goes, well, I was just on with my granddaughter And this is what you need to do. You need to change your schedule so that you give your family in the middle of the week an evening. And so I decided it would be a Wednesday, but it was really scary for me. I was like, well, what if the client says, we're not done? It's like 6.30, we're not done, and we got another three hours. And he just said, you can't worry about that. They have families too, they'll understand. Don't sacrifice because you're afraid that somebody's going to forget that. And anyway, you know who you are? You can you can dictate that. And so I started doing it and I had my manager every project I was going to do on a record, my manager would was part of in the deal memo that Michael leaves at six o'clock on Wednesdays. And there were some exceptions, but for the most part, and even on Wednesday morning, go, hey guys, hey listen, I'm out of here at six. Very clear. Everybody was always on the same page. And the kids got to know, of course, Eric, once he was a kid and the whole family knew I'd be coming home and we'd have a wonderful evening. We'd go go out to dinner or something, we'd go out to Mexican or we'd be playing games or we'd go see a movie or something. But Hmm. that made all the difference, all the difference. And I say to all those who are hearing this, do this, do this. There is, it's cut it, not just the weekends, do it in the middle of the week and give yourself a break, man. You will be so happy. I know a friend of mine, Joel Hamilton, he was having the same issues. He was sad. And I told him this story one day, I think it was an AES dinner or something. And he started it and he still thanks me. <laughs> He's like, oh, thank you so much for that. I was like, 
yeah, listen, it does make a difference. It really does. Before I go, one one final thought here. The process of mixing with clients and getting on the same page about terms, descriptive terms, thin, fat, loud, powerful, whatever. How do you get to that point where you're speaking the same descriptive language when it comes to making the mix what it can be? I stay away from all of that. I just let them talk. Mm. Tell me about the story. What's the story about? I can hear the words. What's the story about? Why'd you write it? Why is there a bridge? Why'd you put a bridge in? Like what's, what's going on? What's changing in the story that you need a bridge for? And they'll just talk to me. And as I'm talking to me, as they're, they're describing the story or what they're lacking from the rough mix or what they're looking for, they're telling me everything I need to know. And then if I have a question, I try to ask every question from the view of it being curious as opposed to being judgmental. Mm. It makes a huge difference. In, in other words, a quick example, we're listening to the rough together and I can't stand the drum sound. Right Now, the rough finishes and also I've been watching them, right? And I notice that they're moving up until maybe one section. So then that's going to trigger an idea. Why did they stop moving? So I'll ask, like maybe they stopped moving in the bridge, right? So I'm going to wonder, why did they stop moving in the bridge? But first, the drum, I got to address that. Now, what can I do? Am I going to say, nice rough mix, but man, your drum sound really sucks. So, so what do you like about the rough mix? And they go, well, we really like the drum sound, right? <laughs> What's going to happen? Or they won't even tell you, right? And so what I do is, so what do you like? I always ask, so what do you like about this rough mix? And then, and then they go, well, we, we love the drum sound. We love the, and I'm thinking to myself, uh-oh. And so I go, oh. That's cool. So tell me about the drum sound. Like what of the drum sound do you actually like? Drum sound incorporates a lot of things. You got kick, snare, drums, toms, hi-hats, room. And they go, well, we really like that tightness of the kick and the snare. And I go, oh, cool. And what about the room? Because in my mind, it's like the room that I hate. The sound of the room is like really tubby and stuff. And they go, ah, the room's not quite right, but we like how it, the drums, and I go, ah, perfect. Right, as opposed to, well, I really hate that. How are they going to respond to you? You've just scared them, first of all, because the thing they like you already say you don't like, so they're already nervous that you're going to screw up their mix because it's not right. So those are things. And then let's say they're not moving. These are obviously when they're present, <laughs> but they're not moving in the bridge. And then that'll be my question: I'm Like, so how's the bridge go? How's the bridge working for you? And then they say, there's a problem with the bridge. And I'm thinking, well, there you go. That's why they stopped moving, right? Things like that. So body language. But do you understand that when you're asking as, as if you're curious, Yeah. then you're going to get an honest answer. It's exploratory. It's exploratory, which is the way when I start mixing, it's exploratory. I'll put up the track and I'm just going to have fun with it. I'm going to see what there is there. I'm just exploring. I'm going to try ideas. But I'm going to quickly, quickly gravitate towards what is the essence of the song, not what is the support factor of the song. That's why in 15 minutes, as Ryan had described, is that I've got a good groove. It feels good because I immediately gravitate for what makes this song. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be the drums and bass. It could be other things. I'm going to take what is the essence of the song? What is the essence of the chorus or the essence of the verse? Wow. I tell you, I have a, I have some 
self-reflection to do now in my own mixing practice, and I uh, you've inspired me today. So it's been a real pleasure to to hear all of this and to hear your journey as well. I know we've there's so much more to it, and we could go for hours. But this has been a great chunk of information to digest. So I, I really deeply appreciate your time, Michael. And for the audience, if you want to check out more about Michael, you can go to mbrower.com. I'll include a link in the show notes and you can certainly head over there. But man, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for the good questions, Matt. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right, Michael, will you take care? You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Michael Brower here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew, including Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his magical voice. If you like the show, leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.